welcome to On the Middle East, our monitor's podcast on the big stories in the region. As the conflict between Israel and Hamas rages on, there is mounting worry about a possible conflagration that may draw in other regional actors, notably Hezbollah and Iran. The staggering number of civilian deaths among Palestinians in Gaza, including more than 4,600 children, according to the Gaza Ministry of Health, is drawing international condemnation and overshadowing Hamas's murderous rampage in Israel that ignited the current war and killed more than 1,200 Israelis. With us here to discuss the conflict and its broader ramifications is former commander of the United States Central Command, General Joseph Votel, who oversaw the war against the Islamic State and has deep knowledge of the region. Our Pentagon correspondent, Jared Zuba, who covered that conflict, joined in the conversation today. Thank you for joining us here today, General Votel. It's good to, good to be with you, Amber, and thank you very much for the, uh, for the invitation. So it's a really crazy time in the Middle East and um, very concerning time. And our Pentagon correspondent, Jared Juba, is here with us today, and he's going to ask you the first question. Great. General, thanks again for joining us. I know you've been very busy. Just wanted to ask, uh, you know, we're uh, about a month into Israel's war against Hamas and the Gaza Strip. Operationally speaking, how far along are we? I mean, from from what you're seeing publicly, what comes next? Uh, and do you see signs that the IDF has been factoring in um, the ostensible advising by U.S. officials uh, in terms of a scaled approach to this campaign? Yeah, thanks. Uh, it's good to be good to be with both of you. Um, yeah, I think we're still relatively early on in the uh, in the campaign here. Um, now, a lot's happened. There's uh, certainly been a lot of strikes conducted by uh, by Israel, and of course, we've now seen the maneuvering and the movement of major forces into Gaza and down around Gaza City, and some incursions into that, and some fighting that's going on, particularly in the northern part of the northern part of the country but I, I i i assess at this point there's still an awful lot that has to be that is yet to be done and most most notably among that is of course the very difficult fighting in gaza city and uh, i think that's that's all still in front of us uh but then be even beyond that is the actual the harder part of this and that is trying to trying to take this military operation and turn it into a political solution, and I think that will ultimately be the uh, be the hardest part of that. But I'm sure we'll we might get into that a little bit more as we as we talk this morning. But I think uh, I think it's about where I would expect this campaign to be right now. Um, still a lot left to do, uh, and a lot of hard fighting before us. Um, uh, but uh, but clearly underway. You know, with respect to how Israel is conducting this, I think I think the very strong message from the U.S. government. And those that have been trying to provide advice to the Israelis is that how you do this is, is as important as what you do. And uh, it's impossible not to take into consideration the humanitarian uh, aspects of this. And uh, I think a, a large part of our, uh, uh, you know, 
advice from the U.S. government standpoint was, you know, we we made some mistakes after 9/11. Um, as we looked at the, you know, the, the couple years of, especially the first few years of conflict after that, uh, that I think we probably would have chose to go a different direction if we had, uh, if we had the opportunity to do it over. So I think it's important for partners to always share that. I, I do think that uh, Israel is taking some of this on. I mean, the agreement to do pauses, um, some of that is is an is an example uh, of this. Um, I, 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 I think uh, Israel has to appreciate that uh, a part of winning, a part of uh, however they define winning in this conflict is, has got to be their reputation on the international stage and certainly in the region. And so they have to take uh, all these humanitarian concerns into, uh, into consideration as they, as they try to wrestle with, uh, with that long term. So I think they're starting to do some of the right things here, whether it's enough or not, I don't know. Um, I mean, it's a very difficult situation. I think they're trying to operate by the laws of armed conflict, but it is a, it is an extraordinarily difficult uh, situation. Well, at the same time, though, uh, we're hearing reports unconfirmed for now, though, that um, Israel may sort of go after Hezbollah and somehow, you know, expect the United States to join in on that front. Um, and of, of course, that eventually means that Iran will somehow be part of this conflict. How concerned are you that, you know, this may actually broaden into a conflict that does involve other uh, regional actors, including, well, Russia, <laughs> Iran, Hezbollah. Well, of course, this has been the this has been the big concern right from the beginning is the widening of this conflict. I think everyone can appreciate that uh, you know as a result of what happened on October seventh that there was going to be a response here directed back at Hamas. But clearly, it's in no one's interest. It's not in Israel's interest. It's not in the region's interest. It's not in the Americans' interest to for a for a much broader conflict across the Levant or across the Middle East. So I, again, I, I continue to believe that that is the case. Um, I, I have been concerned over the over the first few weeks of the conflict here about miscalculations or uh, you know, missteps along the way from a variety, from almost any partner here that might enlarge in the, in the conflict. And I think we've largely avoided that for the most part. Um, and uh, I think that's, uh, that's been good. I, I, I don't know that it's necessarily in Israel's interest to go after Hezbollah right now. I, I, uh, I, I think that would invite a lot more, uh, a lot more to this that would distract from what they're from the very difficult tasks that they have in Gaza right now. So I don't think that that is in their particular interest. But it's clear to me that uh, there has to there will have to be some uh, addressal of the concerns across the region um, at the conclusion of all of this, uh, because you know those things won't go away. The the threat of Hezbollah onto onto uh, Israel will not go away at the end of all of this, and Iran won't go away. They won't change any of their objectives in this, so there will have to be some way to uh, to reckon with that. But as far as a, a wider regional conflict, I think I, th I was concerned about a miscalculation. I'm getting less concerned about that, and while I still think the 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 possibility uh, exists, I think it is decreasing by the day. Um, frankly, a little bit every day that it is we are we are lessening the chances for a for a much broader regional conflict linked to this this operation right here. Uh, 
Well, it's pretty clear to all of us, I think, who follow this region that Iran is absolutely not interested in escalation, even as people like Nasrallah, the Hezbollah leader, you know, um, make hawkish comments about we're going to go after you if you, you know, keep this up sort of thing. But how does that um, reluctance and aversion uh, to getting dragged in uh, chime with what uh, Shia-backed militias, Iran-backed militias are doing in the uh, Syrian and Iraqi theater? We've seen that. Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, you're hitting on a big issue right here. And that is, yeah, I think there is concern about about the control over these Shia militia groups that are much smaller, have a lot less at stake uh, in this and may view this as the opportunity to strike a blow, to uh, move themselves to a more prominent position in the, in the Shia world here uh, with this and, and could take advantage of this situation. And in fact, I know we've seen the movement of uh, organizations or portions of organizations like Asab al-Haq that have moved into the western part of uh, of um, of Syria. We've seen organizations like Kitab Hezbollah, uh, who I would not be surprised are part, largely behind these harassing attacks that are being launched against American installations and, and military posts in the, in both Iraq and uh, and uh, and Syria. Uh, and of course, the Houthis. Uh, you know, this this shooting of missiles really up the up the the length of the Red Sea is is really concerning and of course they they have a very dominant control over you know a, a key choke point the Bab el Mandeb so uh, we should we should be really concerned about that and I think that is I think the aspect that that does concern me a lot um, is how, how the control over these types of organizations and them acting in a much more uh, independent manner I think we take it uh, we have a we have a belief that Iran exercises some control, but I'm not so sure that control is as is as certain as we might expect. And so I am concerned about these organizations who could cause more problems, uh, probably not necessarily changing the uh, the character of the conflict in a overly substantial way, but they certainly could cause casualties. They certainly could provoke some more responses to to something through their own actions. All right, thank you, General. I mean, I'd love to come back to this uh, issue of command and control, the IRGC Quds Force, and then some of their proxies uh, later on in this, if we do have some time. But at the moment, I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about uh, the U.S. capabilities in the region, um, how they might apply uh, to uh, be employed in a potentially realistic contingency. Um, what are they authorized to do? And uh, sort of how does that factor into uh, sort of the broader, the Pentagon's broader global strategy, national defense strategy in terms of force allocation, modernization? Um, what are we likely to see here uh, in terms of deployment? Yeah, I, well, my my my, uh, my view on this and my, my observation, and I'm seeing a lot of the same things that you are, is that the United States, I think at this point, has a uh, kind of a centrally uh, top-driven decision-making cycle here. So most of the decisions about employment of force are going to be made in Washington or uh, certainly at the Pentagon. 
um, and then uh, and then delegated down through CENTCOM to to the operational commanders to uh, to take place. And that that does not surprise me in a situation like this, where there are, it is it is pretty complex, and and they're trying to uh, trying to trying to manage things and and uh, not only support Israel but also try to manage uh, relations across the region and and uh, and a variety of threats that we've just talked about. So from a command and control standpoint, I think that's about where we are. Uh, right now, that that uh, I guess you can debate whether that's the right approach or not. I think we've got some very capable commanders who can manage the situation on the ground. But you know, this is the this is the this is the this is the way the president and the National Security Council uh, want to orchestrate it, and I think that's that's fine as long as they are actually involved in it and and, uh, and contributing to the decision makings. With respect to what the United States has. Uh, uh, has deployed here. As many know, we've moved two carrier strike groups into the region, which is the first time in a long time that we've had two strike groups uh, back in the back in the region. And even as the CENTCOM commander, the most I ever had was one. And then for the majority of the time I was CENTCOM commander, we did not have any um, that were in the region. Um, so these really are our premier response capabilities. Um, these the carrier strike groups, each of those carriers with, you know, between 80 and 90 aircraft on them uh, can generate an extraordinary amount of combat power. Can cover a, a lot of a lot of area, uh, and can do it pretty darn quickly. So it's really at the leading edge of our deterrent capability here. Uh, in terms of that you've seen some reporting, we have submarines in there again. That adds a little bit more, but it also beefs up some of our collection capabilities, so we understand what's going on. Of course, we move fighter squadrons and other things in there. I, I think what uh, I think what the purpose of all of these resources has really been to posture and once you know communicate to Iran and uh, and everybody else that hey we are here and we are prepared and we've been able to match that capability for the most part with some of our narrative that uh, you know that demonstrates kind of a willingness to to use this and again and again we've struck just a couple times in the last uh, week or so against um uh, militias, Iranian aligned militias who have who have uh, conducted attacks against American installations. So we are kind of matching uh, the willingness with the capability here, and that's an important aspect of it. But uh, but certainly, uh, as I mentioned, really messaging the adversaries, messaging uh, Israel that we are here, messaging the broader region um, that uh, that the United States is there, and taking active measures to deter a much broader uh, conflict that would be devastating to the region, not just to us or anybody else, but to the but to the entire region, and uh, would disrupt a lot. So uh, I think uh, that's that's I think what we're doing. I, I would just add, you know, oftentimes I think our our listeners uh, think about just posturing military equipment, but we've also done a good job posturing diplomatically. And I think that's been really important. I mean, the Secretary of State's been over there at least three times. The CENTCOM commander's been over there a couple of times. Secretary of Defense, the president went in the first seven days. Um, if that doesn't show a very clear U.S. focus on this and, uh, and a desire to, uh, to keep this in control, uh, I don't know what does. Uh, and so I, I think we've done a good job posturing militarily and posturing diplomatically over the last over the last uh, several weeks. And hopefully we'll continue to do that as we move forward. Um, even before October 7th, though, you were grappling both with these attacks by uh, Iran-backed militias, but also by Turkey uh, and 
General Mazlum in Suleimaniye had a sort of close shave when uh, that Turkish drone struck his convoy. And we've seen this repeated uh, many times over and, you know, huge uh, damage to the civilian infrastructure there as Turkey has kept up this sustained campaign of uh, degrading uh, that entity there. Um, how concerned are you that, you know, this is going to escalate on from the Turkish side as well. And ultimately, how sustainable is uh, the U.S. presence in Syria, given these attacks from multiple fronts? And of course, the huge political pressure, diplomatic pressure that Turkey brings to bear, saying, I'm a NATO ally, you're in bed with terrorists, quote, unquote. Um, yeah. How do you see this going? Well, yeah, I guess the way I see this is that uh, I think our presence is sustainable, but I think we do have to remove uncertainty from the situation here. I, I think I don't think we can allow attacks against our troops in Syria or or um, Iraq to go unanswered. And I think we have to hold people accountable. I was really glad to see last night in this, this most recent strike here, we actually went after what seemed to be uh, some leadership or something else in a safe house or, or however they characterized it there, but I think that's important. And I, and I think that uh, that responding to these things, I think does remove the uncertainty associated with the situation and makes, makes those adversaries appreciate that there is a price to be paid if you if you do this, and we will not tolerate this. And I think if we can do that, if we can restore that, then I think we can we are back into a more sustainable uh, um, presence in in Syria and, and and in Iraq. And and of course in Iraq, we also need to work very closely with the Iraqi government. Part of we are there at their invitation, by the way. So um, they should bear some responsibility for. Uh, quelling these types of threats against our troops, it's in their interest as well as, as well as ours uh, as uh, as well. The the situation with Turkey again is is a is a really complex one and one that I have found deeply frustrating for a long uh, long period of time. Um, and I and I don't know that we will ever uh, resolve this through any military aspect here. We've uh, tried to orchestrate a large number of confidence-building measures with the uh, with the Turks, and certainly when I when the campaign was underway, I, 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 we may be doing less of that these days. I assume we are, um, but uh, we've tried a lot. Ultimately, this is going to take some kind of diplomatic. Uh, diplomatic and political solution here, uh, which has been beyond our grasp uh, for now, you know, going on five and a half years uh, past the campaign of uh, of actually trying to, uh, uh, well, four, four and a half years since the, the military campaign has, has ended. Um, and we just have been unable to get to any kind of political solution that would uh, guarantee rights and recognition for the Kurdish uh, people of Syria and uh, and uh, and provide them, um, you know, the diplomatic uh, uh, and political protection that they that they require. So, are you basically saying that the uh, Biden administration hasn't been doing enough for the Kurds? Well, it isn't uh, well, it's it's not just the Biden administration; it's everybody else. I mean, this is an international problem. The whole UN approach has has collapsed on this. Um, and has just not been able to do much. There's not uh, parties to this, um, Russia, Turkey, 
the Syrian regime, others have been unwilling to come to any kind of table here to have any kind of political discussion. I don't want to put it all on the United States. Uh, we we borrow a lot here in supporting the, the Kurds in this. I think it was in our interest to do that. And uh, I, I certainly have a lot of time for this, but there's a lot of others, lot, lots of others besides the United States that need to be paying attention to this. Since we're speaking about the region sort of holistically uh, sort of a security approach uh, and these uh, uh, political agreements, if we could, I wonder if we could zoom out generally. I know when you were at CENTCOM, you worked on some of the uh, discussions with some of the Gulf states on integrated air and missile defense. Uh, the Biden administration has pushed forward on the Abraham Accords, Arab-Israeli uh, defense and security cooperation. Um, what's the partnered angle here to this, you know, potential for regional conflict? I mean, are the pieces in place for uh, the U.S. and you know its local partners in the region to sort of sufficiently parry these long-distance or long-range, mid-range attacks by Iran proxy groups. Uh, you know, we, you mentioned the uh, the attack by the Houthis um, based in Yemen. Um, and what can we expect to see going forward on that? Well, I I think we were. I think we were on path to getting there. I mean, the the idea of of integrated air defense is not an, is not a new or novel one that you know that I came up with. Everybody's been pursuing that, and and a variety of other cooperative efforts in the region for a, a long period of time. And you know, as a result of different political objectives, cultural issues, trust issues between partners in the region, um, you know, we've uh, we've this is this has escaped us uh, to this. To this date, I think the Abraham Accord has provided a good platform upon which to build on trust and confidence and and good relationships. I mean, we were seeing a year ago, we were seeing uh, joint military exercises, combined military exercises with the Israeli and some of the Gulf partners, along with the U.S. on the as kind of the broker of that uh, taking place in both the air and the maritime environment. These are. These are really important. Uh, there's there are good commercial links between these countries. These are these are important aspects as well. I am concerned that the current conflict, uh, what's happening in Gaza right now, is is taking that off uh, is taking that off track, and it'll and we'll have to it'll it'll have to kind of get back onto it. But yeah, I think that's a platform from which we we can do this. Um, uh, ultimately, this is about trust. Uh, between all the Gulf partners uh, in this, and that's oftentimes what has uh, what has eluded uh, eluded our ability to create a, a more uh, integrated air defense system or some other things right here. And so it takes a lot of time. And uh, the the Abraham Accords, I think, were providing a good platform for that. Uh, but I think it's, it's probably a little bit off kilter right now as a result of the current conflict. I was just going to follow up real briefly, if I can, I, sir. I was wondering if you see. Um, do you see there potentially being a point of U.S. involvement in this uh, conflict or not direct involvement, but support for Israel's campaign uh, and attempt to deter sort of wider con conflagration? Do you see this um, as a potentially eventually coming to a point which might have diminishing returns for Washington's goal of building a regional bulwark uh, for security? Well, yeah, I, I think so. I mean, we've got two carrier strike groups in the in the mid in the mid east right now. Um, I, I I don't know that we're going to be able to sustain that indefinitely uh, with our other commitments, particularly our commitments out in the Indo Pacific area. Uh, we're going to have to we're going to have to rotate. We're going to have to move those things around. I think what we need to do is I I do think we need to identify a sustainable level of 
force presence in the region that is there that, that is sufficient enough to reassure our partners and protect our own interests. Um, and I think that is something that we've we've struggled with identifying. I mean, we've uh, we've run the whole gambit here from literally hundreds hundreds of thousands of troops in the region to you know what we had just prior to this, which was down in the I don't know twenties or thirties. Uh, thousands of, of troops in the in the region. So we've got to find what the what the sustainable amount of forces and military capability that we need to have in the in the region. And I think it's I think our interests that we have here bear a commitment of military resources. I mean we're still very concerned about as as we've been talking about, we're concerned about instability in the region. Instability here doesn't doesn't stay there. It affects our interests in other areas. We're concerned about terrorism. We've just seen a a, a good example of it. We're concerned about the flow of commerce and resources coming out of the region. That's a vital US interest. We're concerned about Iran's uh, malign uh, objectives, particularly with respect to proliferation of of, uh, of uh, nuclear weapons and things like that. That's something that we want to uh, want to prevent. And again, I think uh, I think a I think a, a positive uh, influence by the United States and the region is in our interest. So I think we have to figure out what that is. And I think we can do that at the same time that we concentrate appropriately in other areas like the Indo-Pacific. I think we're I think we're big enough. I think we're a rich enough country that we can do this. We should be able to do this to protect our interests. So we've got to think long-term in terms of how this fits together. And I think it's important for us to appreciate that what happens in the Middle East doesn't stay there. It's got to be part of a broader national security strategy that address our concerns in other areas as well. In many ways, these are all linked, largely because of the concerns about great power competition. One final question, uh, General. Very early on in the conflict, uh, there was this idea that Hamas and ISIS are the same, and that's been propagated by uh, the Israeli government. Are they the same? I, I don't think I don't think they are exactly the same. I mean, some of their methods, the brutality of some of their tactics, I think is is uh, is similar. They both. Uh, they both have, uh, they both control terrain and control and compel populations. Uh, they, they share that in, uh, in an example. They both had, were driven by, uh, you know, very virulent uh, ideologies that, uh, that, you know, were largely destructive um, uh, in, in nature. So I think they have that in common. Where I see the differences is that Hamas, uh, for, uh, you know, better or worse, Probably worse is is has been recognized as the authority in in Gaza for a number of years now, fifteen plus years, um, and so they have had much more of an ability to um, to um, to to embed in the population, to embed in the land, and uh, that's that's different. That's physically different than what ISIS did. Now ISIS took control of a large swath of area and and embedded themselves in and married into the communities, things like that. But they did not have, they had not done that for the length of time that Hamas had. Um, second of all, um, the uh, the the population over which uh, over which Hamas rules is different than the population over which ISIS ruled. Um, that population that ISIS ruled was largely one that was subjugated. They didn't ask for this. They didn't recognize ISIS as a as any kind of any form of legitimate governance or anything else. Um, uh, I think that's different with the Palestinians. And while I, I won't try to you know uh, broad 
broadly paint everybody in in uh, Palestinians, uh, you know, political viewpoints here. I mean, they did. There, there were civilian agencies set up within Hamas that were purportedly there to represent the people and provide services and and the and the and the. The, the aspects of govern, government to to them that that was that's a little bit different than to a population that recognized and needed that and 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 looked that way that was not necessarily the case there in 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 uh, in with ISIS so I think I think I see some similarities I think uh, there's some differences but I think the the real differences really are in the are in the are in the op military operations uh, just this the situation for which Israel is dealing with right now in Gaza City I think is actually much more complex than than what we dealt with there are layers of complexity there are hostages there are this huge humanitarian uh, piece. There is the information environment, which is hyperactive right now. Uh, and there's just there's a lot that is uh, that is complicating this um, situation for them. So I think that makes it a, a different, much different situation. Plus, Hamas is indigenous to uh, the, right. That, yeah, uh, exactly. There, yeah, this yeah, the ISIS was largely foreigners who came from other places and subjected this on to them. Although they had some locals, the majority of their leadership, the majority of their fighters were in fact um, um, foreigners, and they brought their own wives. They did other things. I mean, it was really crazy how they tried to um, you know insert themselves into these communities out here. So. And in terms of the prosecution of the war, obviously you had that partner force, the SDF. Um, yeah, with you. yeah, that, and that's that's right. So that's another big difference here. I mean, the way the United States fought this is we we fought this by you know through an advise and assist campaign where we enabled um, the Iraqi security forces in Iraq and the Syrian Democratic forces in in Syria as. Uh, as the forces who did most of the fighting and the dying, frankly. Uh, and then we provided the, the leadership, the unique capabilities, the intelligence, the fire support, and everything else they needed to do that. And I think did a pretty good uh, pretty good job of it. So it was a different campaign for us. Uh, Israel is alone in this. They are, they are waging their own fight here. They don't have partners on the ground that, uh, that, are, that are, you know, carrying out their wishes uh, or moving towards their objectives. They have to do this themselves. Well, thank you so much, General, for giving us your time. Uh, and we look forward to hosting you again, perhaps in the... Yeah, good, I look forward to it. And I wish you uh, good luck on your travel here, safe travels into the uh, into the region. I thank you. Thank you, sir. I look forward to hearing more from you when you return. Thanks, General. Thanks so much for joining us. And this brings us to the end of another episode of On the Middle East. The General got to the heart of the matter saying a political solution is ultimately what will resolve these conflicts, be it Israel's war against Hamas or Turkey's ongoing military campaign against the Kurds of Syria. Thanks for tuning in.